0: Folks, and welcome to The Farm, a podcast dedicated to synchro mysticism, parapolitics, and high weirdness in all its many forms. This is your host, Recluse, aka Stephen Snyder, the longtime curator of the Visit Blog and author of a special relationship, Trump Epstein and the Sacred History of the Anglo American Establishment. If you like what you hear here today, be sure to check me out at visupview.blockspot.com. That's V I S U B V I E W, all one word at blockspot.com, and procure a copy of that book. Works at the farm's official store, which is at the farm That is the farm podcast, all one word.store. And please consider signing up for the farm's patron. You get two additional full length shows per month. That's between three and four hours of uh, bonus material with exclusive gifts and content. As well, and if you get into the all access Patreon section, you also get our monthly Zoom party, which is uh, coming up soon. And a lot of other goodies, including uh, State of the Union addresses and updates on ongoing investigations, access to documents I'm getting. It's a variety of things. So anyway, keep that in mind. All right. Today's guest is making her maiden appearance on the farm. She has studied religion, new religious movements, occultism, and paranormal experiences for over four decades, has advanced degrees in religious studies and American cultural studies, and is an ardent environmentalist. She has practiced Sufism for two decades and has studied Swedish-Finnish fi- ruins slash shamanism, and mid-Hunson, Agakwin indigenous traditions from native teachers. She has been a journalist and has also published poetry short stories academic papers a textbook on new religious movements and most recently a survey of paranormal reports and experiences in the hudson valley entitled mysterious beauty living with the paranormal in the hudson valley she is also the author of final season a lovecraftian quartet which is a freaking awesome title by the way folks i give you guys professor wham professor thank you so much for dropping by this evening
1: thanks for having me intro
0: (laughs) yes i'm really excited for this uh we have a mutual uh, online friend in stephanie quick i know stephanie speaks very highly of wham so this is exciting um, Okay, guys, you know, we've got a really good show for you guys to, in store to boot. So, and that's also an important one. We're going to use Robert Berdella, the Kansas City butcher, as a starting point for this discussion. For those of you unaware, Berdella was an 80s era serial killer. He has a lot of interesting connections, as we shall see, which play into why many of you have probably never heard of him. Hint. It involves the infamous Franklin scandal of Omaha, Nebraska, and many other areas that tie into it. And if that were not enticing enough, we're even going to get into Lovecraftian entities for good measure. It's going to be quite an outing. So let's start the show. Okay, to start off with Robert Badella is not one of the most well known serial killers out there. So can you give the listeners at home a general overview of his life to start off with? Like, what is his origin story and what did his crimes consist of?
1: Actually, when I decided I would put together a summary of this, I realized that Wikipedia does a pretty good job <laughs> of, of summarizing his life. Um, just very briefly uh he was born in 1949 uh he was an aquarius which would make me make him really angry that i said that about him um he was born in cayuga falls i believe ohio Um, and he you know he didn't quote unquote kill as far as we know as many people as as some serial killers, it's it's kind of the things that surround his crimes. Uh, once you get to know about them a little bit, that make him a little bit more infamous. And he he also um, didn't start this until a little bit later in his life, which is kind of unusual, at least for some ki- serial killers. Um, he was active, as far as we can tell, in the mid. 1980s up until 1987, uh, about 18, 1984 to 1987, at least of the official crimes that he was convicted of. Um, prior to that, he'd been raised in a fairly, um, I don't know, I guess you would say normal middle-class upbringing in Ohio. Uh, he was raised a Catholic. His mother was very devout um, his father um, favored a younger son more than Bob, uh, I think uh, based on what we can tell, because that younger son was more athletic and kind of fit more of the masculine ideal, if you will, that I guess um, the father had for the sons. Um, Bob was known as a kind of precocious young man. Um, and um, but he figured out that he was gay, uh, I, I believe, probably in, in his teenage years, which would have been the late 50s, early 60s, uh, something like that. Um, he matriculated into um, the Kansas City Art Institute in the late 60s, which was a fairly uh, e- exclusive uh, art school at the time Um, and especially during the 60s and but he was only there for a couple of years because he was a bit of a troublemaker and um, he had some odd ideas of what art consisted of which did not tally with apparently his instructors and so um, in 1969 he voluntarily resigned or you know left the art institute but stayed in Kansas City um, where he, um, was apparently occasionally a low level drug dealer. Um, and by low level, I mean, you know, he wasn't working for anyone. He just sort of did this himself. He started doing that in the late sixties and he would periodically do that throughout the most, the rest of his life off and on. He certainly maintained certain kinds of drug connections. Um, and he he worked as various things in Kansas City, including a, he worked as a chef, a sous chef. He worked as um, he did all kinds of odd jobs until finally he uh, hit on his media, which was um, buying and selling antiquities. Uh, and there's a whole story that he would tell about how he got into that. Uh, but. Um, he ended up at a place that still exists in fact i saw it not long ago because i uh, had i took a little trip to kansas city for other reasons a couple of weeks ago and there's a there's a a, a area in what's called the um the westport district of kansas city that's called um, the westport flea market and it still exists and he had a shop in there he sold these antiquities and he also sold just a lot of other really interesting things including um, one of the first at least that i was aware of one of the first and most elaborate um, collections or inventories of trade beads from all over the world you know you could come and get these beads to to use them for art projects or whatever you wanted to use them for Um, And he had quite a collection of those. And uh, so he was sort of known for that. So it was while he was, and he also did things around town, you know, he, he did various um, charitable things. Um, He involved himself every single year, pretty much in like uh, uh, the, uh, the auctions that public television does, you know, so the, the public television station, KCPT, he, um, always participated in the the phone banks with those, um, and so he he was kind of known around town in the alternative, um, you know, art community, gay community, um, and business community, and he continued to do that up until the time when he was arrested. So you know that overlapped with his period of activity. I don't know if that's enough of a of an intro,
0: but. No, that was fantastic. Um, so there was one additional question that had occurred to me. So do you know if he ever went out of uh, state to get items for Bob's Bazaar?
1: I'm sure that he did. Um, yeah, I'm sure that he did. Uh, some of the I, I was never completely aware of where he would go, um, but you would have to go at least occasionally to uh, auctions and to other places like that in order to get some of the things at least order some of the things that he did he had some fairly exclusive items um i remember that at the time when he was arrested and his house was inventoried uh because you know they they basically sold everything off um for you know to pay for his uh, the legal fees and all kinds of stuff like that but Apparently, he had like the fifth largest collection of antiquities in North America at the time. Really?
0: Wow. So,
1: so it was it was extensive. Um, and by antiquities, what I mean is um, cultural art and religious items from he, he especially liked things from Africa and from Asia, from Southeast Asia, um, from India, from China, from Tibet. Um, in fact, um, you, you know, it's really popular now in certain circles to be able to get uh, at least faux replicas, uh, I guess faux and replica, it's the same thing, <laughs> to get replicas of, um, of Tibetan artifacts for ritual worship um, at, you know, all kinds of places now. Um, but he was, his shop was the first place in Kansas City. Uh, where you could get stuff like this that was real, that that weren't replicas that were that were real items, you know, real Doriers, real uh, Grigugs real. um, uh, I mean, I actually have some of the the items from his shop that I got. So um, his stuff was he had quite a collection. It was uh, apparently pretty astounding.
0: That's interesting. No, I was I, I was really fascinated by the time frame as well, because it sort <laughs> of um it seemed like it intersected on one hand. Well, specifically, I mean, in terms of what was going on in NYC, because I mean, obviously, on the one hand, you had kind of this time frame with the magical child and that sort of whole scene mm-hmm. with the bookstore in New York. But um I've always wondered because um what's his name? Oh, Mark Hoffman uh the architect of the infamous salamander letters uh in Utah uh was also sort of uh, a big figure in moving like a lot of these antiquities supposedly from like the early Mormon church and uh he took periodic trips uh to New York City I believe throughout the 70s and early 80s uh, to acquire goods so uh, me and one of my friends have often wondered if there might have been some intersection with Hoffman and uh, maybe some of the magical child milieu and um, uh, and when I had seen that about uh, Berdella it had sort of struck me that that would be kind of interesting too if he had possibly uh, ventured into some of those circles at some points it seems like a lot of those uh people in that particular era were scouring New York City and kind of searched for some of these um these rare items uh from a little earlier and uh, well in the case of Hoffman earlier in colonial history but i mean or early US history but it sounds like in Bertella's case he was looking for a little bit older than that
1: yeah it's it's i i mean it's i think it would be he he had to have known people. He had to have had a network of some type, just simply because of of the of the nature of some of the items that he got. I mean, one of the things that I remember that he had, and he had it in his shop for a really really long time because it was really expensive. It was a real item, but and these things would have had to have been contraband. You know, they would have had to have um, been stolen from temples or uh, you know from places that. or or from people um because they're not the kinds of things that would be traded on open markets especially today
2: Mm -hmm. Uh,
1: some of the laws that have been passed about those kinds of things but there was this one statue that he had that was um it was a tibetan statue of uh the kalachakra which i don't know if you're familiar with that but it's um um it's a it's a representation of the yab-yung, the, um, the you know male and female principles being joined in a kind of divine tantric sexual act.
0: And does it have like a lot of um, arms?
1: It this one does, yes. Uh, the kala chakra can be
0: represented <laughs> in
1: different ways, but this particular one does have lots of arms, and it was large. It was it was clearly intended for a temple. I mean, it was a big statue. And on top of this, it had never been, quote unquote, decommissioned. Now, what that means is, is that when these ritual items are actually sort of imbued with their spiritual potency, um, usually either in the base or at the top of one of the, of one of the, the figures, um, like where the crown chakra would be, there's like a chamber that like a holy scroll is put into, you know, probably you know what, whatever whatever would activate it you know in, for in Vajrayana Buddhism. And then it's sealed in there. Usually there's like a, there's like a, a wax seal or something like that. and it might even be coated over with a, a little bit of uh, metal on top of it, you know, just to, to sort of hide it but these scrolls are usually found in the base or in like i said in the, the where the crown chakra would be and uh, sometimes in both places and and there's and there and usually you can tell if something like that has been decommissioned because it's been opened and that stuff has been popped out you know what i mean these were this was not decommissioned i mean it was intact and, he, and for a lot of these items that were like that, I mean, it wasn't the only item that he had that was like that. Um, he, uh, he actually often had papers, provenance papers for them, um, so that, you know, if someone was collecting them, they would know exactly where it came from and, and you know, what, what its probable value was. I mean, I have a couple of items myself that one of them I know is illegal to trade and and i've kept it because i'm trying to decide i kind of liberated it from his shop i realized it. i was like this should not be here and so i i took it and i've i've been trying to decide exactly what to do with it or who to give it to because it really needs to be returned to proper tibetan authorities um so that that's what i mean it's like a lot of the stuff he had Uh, he had to have contacts in the underground sort of contract um, trade in these things how much he actually traveled to these places I'm not entirely sure because he was never wealthy he didn't have a lot of money to do that himself Um, and a lot of the um, he also engaged in a lot of barter or trade for these things so that Uh, So that a lot so that cash could be hidden or not exchanged. You know what I mean? So. um, But it's I'm sure that he knew people that were in that network that you indicate or knew of them because i don't know where else he would have gotten some of these
0: things uh when may i the the deity that you were referencing before uh was is it spelled y-a-m-a-n-t-a-k-a what um which deity the one uh that i asked oh, if it had like a lot of arms if it was just-
1: that's called chakra.
0: chakra oh kala chakra okay
1: kala chakra is uh is uh is a title of a form of deity okay
0: okay okay My uh, here this
1: this is this is um to be more specific this is actually sort of a google question <laughs> so uh let's see here kala chakra yes um it's, an, it's, an, it's basically an iconic image is what it is. Um, it refers to, it's a patron tantric deity, right? Um, and uh, um, there's the, the, the type of deity that it is, you know, in, in terms of what his name is. Um, it can be a variety of different deities. But it, ha- it it indicates the, the form that the deities take. That's why it's called Kala Chakra. Uh, Kala Chakra means like the great wheel or the great energy source, you know, and um, or the ultimate enemy, uh, energy source, I guess, is probably a better way of putting it.
0: Okay. okay. Well, thank you for clarifying that. All right. So, what differenti- oh oh, and I'm,
1: I forgot to mention his shop was called Bob's Bizarre Bazaar. That's the <laughs> That is Bob's bizarre, bizarre. Uh
0: What differentiated Burdella's victims from the kinds that are typically targeted by a quote unquote conventional serial killer? If there is such a thing.
1: <laughs> a conventional serial killer. Well, I think that probably most people would, you know, if they if the Probably Dahmer comes the closest in terms of, of uh, type and style, you know, of, so if we're going to compare him to Dahmer, <laughs> which is, you know, it's kind of gross to compare these things. But I, there are some things I think that make Berdella a little distinctive. In that,
0: it's kind of interesting too, because didn't Delmer have spend some time in the Northern Ohio area too growing up?
1: That I don't recall, honestly. That, uh, but but they are different generations. Yeah, Dr. I know. Yeah, Burdella was much younger than yeah, Burdella. Yeah. Um, and uh, but what made Burdella I think, a little bit different than your run of the run of the mill serial killer is, um. First of all, um, killing the individual was not his goal, um, and in that sense, he's very much like Dahmer. Dahmer always talked about how he, he, you know, the only he didn't really want to kill them. It's that that's the only way he could make them stay. Um, but with Berdella, it as long as he had control of them, and that's something, you know, with the drugs that he, that he used that we can get into his, his connection to the drug trade, um, his goal was to control these individuals and keep them alive as long as possible so that he could torture them, um, which, um, you know, is not something I really like to talk about very much because his, the thing, and I don't want to get into details about what he did, um, because he, it, you know I know too much about it. Um, but he, he, you know, he would keep them alive as long as possible. One individual he kept alive as long as six weeks, in order to torture them and try different things out on them. And three of the individuals, or th- maybe it was four of the individuals, he was convicted of killing. Um, died just simply as a result of the, the injuries that they um, were subjected to. Um, in, uh, in, other wo- in other words, I mean, he killed them, but it's like they died as a result of what he was doing to them. It's not that he went and purposely killed them. Um, and that's that's why when you look at what he was convicted of, what he admitted to, people will notice that, He's only um, he's only convicted of one murder and then later admitted to the murder of another person. But the other things that he um, confessed to were second degree um, murder and that second degree, those second degree murder um, confessions are because he, you know, they died as a result of torture and not because he set out to kill them. Um, so in that sense, he's, you know, killing w- was not his first um, goal, really. Now, once the person was dead, uh, he had sort of a secondary goal or a secondary thing that he sort of got off on. And that was finding ways of, of keeping his crimes from the police um, uh, because he hated the police. I mean, he detested the, the police in Kansas City, particularly. And so if he could pull something off on them, that was sort of like, uh, his, his second, his second, um, kind of, uh, vicarious goal. He was a very vengeful person. Uh, I, I even knew that, um, if, if someone wronged him in business um, or even um, kind of wronged him personally, he took it very personally and he never really forgot it. And so um, his, his, the way in which he disposed of the bodies, you know, by basically cutting them up into pieces and over time, putting them into the garbage um, after taking from each body, things that he wanted to keep, sort of for his own keepsakes, Um, then the rest would be sort of, you know, piecemeal put into the garbage over a period of weeks so that, you know, the bodies have never been recovered. They're in land, they're in a landfill. Um, So that was, but he was able to get away with, you know, get away with this and keep it from the police and keep the police from ever having the satisfaction in a sense Of finding those bodies and so that was kind of the other thing that got him off was so in that sense you know he's unusual there is still that power element that sexual element that you find in a lot of serial killers um but but it's not it's not premised on killing the person so much does that make sense
0: yes 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 um it's I, kind it, of
1: more. it's kind of more grotesque actually
0: yeah 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 i mean it's i mean almost i mean it sounds like he almost was doing like i mean a, a grizzly kind of experiment or something on people yeah. and trying to see yeah. different ways you could manipulate the body or something it's very right. interesting i suppose but um well,
1: that, well he kept meticulous records of everything yeah
0: that's that's very i mean he's it seems like it was almost like scientific what he was at least in his mind or something like.
1: right that. right exactly
0: um and i I was curious I had looked it up, and yes, Jeffrey Dahmer uh did grow up in the same region of Ohio from the time that he was um i think about six to uh the time that he was uh he graduated from high school this would have been like around the Akron Ohio area which I believe mm-hmm. is a little to the east or something of um uh where Bedella was uh right. interesting I think D- uh Dahmer's family moved there in 66 and then Verdella graduated in 67 and moved to Kansas City so kind of like passing ships in the night i guess but um, right
1: right oh the other the only the other difference is that with one exception all of berdella's um victims were a little bit older Uh, most of dahmer's victims for example were teenagers
0: yeah yeah
1: majors um but um only one of berdella's victims was a minor so
0: yeah that was uh i think the one glaring difference but yeah it's it is strange that they did have a lot of similarities in a sense and also i mean kind of growing up in the same region of ohio as well very strange um all right so what to what extent did berdella interact with kansas city's new age community
1: well um not the new age community so much uh the uh,
0: during the, like no- the neo-pagan community yeah
1: yeah during the during the 1980s and i remember this well because i was participating in these some of these communities um during the 1980s um the there the neo-pagan communities the lbgtq communities of which of course they weren't called that at the time um and the uh Um, uh, the neo-pagan new age and lbgtq communities and uh, as well as sort of just the alternative art communities they were they all sort of had overlapping members but they were all considered to be pretty distinct so um, bob bob's interaction with these communities um, especially the new age and neo-pagan communities were simply through his store he provided a mechanism um, whereby people who you didn't really have any like um, um, new age stores at the time or neo-pagan stores at the time. I mean, I worked at a, in the early eighties till 1984, I worked in a, a women's alternative bookstore. And so like we had a metaphysical section um, and an occult section that, in the store because it served a lot of alternative communities uh, where people could come and buy some things like that. But he also supplied some of those things, you know. Just if 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 people if people were wanting wands or athames or pentagrams or you know things that like that, you know, you could find some of those types of things in his store. And it was just simply a commercial. Thing. Or he was also one of the first people in the in the Kansas City area to carry crystals, you know, um, the, you know the the those rocks and quartz and amethyst crystals and all that kind of stuff. So it, it was purely commercial, honestly. Um, he saw a market and in an alternative market, and he would and he would serve it. Uh, and in, in that sense, he was very sort of practical that way. Um, I mean, my experience of him as a business person is that he he was pretty good about um, s- serving, serving community needs if people uh, talked to him and said that they wanted to see certain things, you know, so that he was pretty good about getting those kinds of things. He also, however, was always short of cash because he was always spending beyond his means. In one way or another uh, so um, you know he, he was he was like a, a lot of small businesses in that regard <laughs> you know what i mean um but th- but that's what his relationship was he didn't actually himself participate in any of those communities
0: so what did his religious beliefs consist of i know there's been a lot of speculation in that regard
1: well he was raised a catholic and apparently at different points in his life when he was young, he experimented with different types of religions or explored different types of religions. He knew a, he knew a little bit about a lot of things when it came to religion. Like for example, um, there was a a, 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 a very short-lived neo-pagan magazine in can- the kansas city area called the rune that existed for maybe about two three years and he would occasionally write a little blurb for them you know like describing what you know the the folklore surrounding a particular crystal or a particular symbol or something like that so he knew he knew about certain things, enough to talk about them or to sell them or whatever. Um, I, When I knew him, um, I did not perceive that he necessarily believed in anything. In fact, once I asked him, I alluded to this at the beginning of the show, once I asked him what sign he was born under, because I didn't know what his birthday was, and he told me that he had been born under the money sign. That's what he told me, and uh, it wasn't until very recently, actually, when I was contacted by um, the uh, relative of one of his victims, who has done a great deal of research into Budella's background and to and into some of the other connections that we'll be talking about, uh, that I found out that that in fact. He had developed a kind of spirituality uh, that apparently informed at least some of what he was doing to some of his victims um, and that that was evidenced in his house. Um, but it appears from what I can tell just of, you know, even what information that I have gotten from this individual, that it appears to be kind of a bricklage. You know, it's, it's very much, it's very American in the sense that it's very eclectic. You know, he picked from various things and sort of constructed his own set of beliefs about it. And they appear to be largely focused around certain types of fantasies that he had ever since he was a young man Um, there's there's a movie that has been referenced um, that where he he says that this movie influenced him it was a movie called the collectors and it was a movie about a man who um, uh, collected young women Essentially, you know, uh, kidnapped them and and collected them, both dead and alive, or something. I've never seen it, but um, this something about the main character's obsession and with fantasy uh, apparently was something that he connected to, and uh, so it, and and I know that it had something to do with. Um, rebelling or, or moving against the kind of Catholicism, devout Catholicism, that his mother believed in. Um, in fact, the, the, um, the police apparently found evidence in his, in his house of a series of rituals that he did specifically, and they were connected with things that he had written in a journal And that I guess he did talk about it a little bit to them. Um, uh, And these rituals were designed personally in order to try to break the emotional and mental hold that he felt that his mother had on him psychologically. So, uh, you know, I don't know exactly what he believed, but, you know, in terms of like a theology or an ontology, um, But it apparently had something to do with um, fulfilling dark, finding the spiritual force to fulfill his dark fantasies. That's probably the best, you know, if you can develop a religion around that. It was his own thing, whatever it was.
0: Yeah, no, and I, I believe he wasn't the only serial killer who was inspired by The Collector either. I think Leonard Leight was maybe a fan of it, possibly a few other ones as well. Um, All right, so uh, Bradella was generally regarded as being highly intelligent too. Do you um, mm-hmm. know if he was ever in the gifted program?
1: Well, um, you know, I mean, I can speak to this because um, I know when those gifted programs began. <laughs> um, he during the time when he was in high school, there weren't gifted programs as such, uh, and not like there are now. Um, and I know this because in the 1970s, I was in one. I was in like a proto gifted program. You know, I was in a pilot program in, in high school, and uh, and he was in high school in the 60s. Now, what I do know is that um, one of his teachers, I guess his high school had some kind of a situation where if you were a more advanced pupil, that you could, you could um, be put into kind of an independent study kind of situation that was sort of like their version of it. So I think that um, if I remember right, he was placed in something like that. Um, but he graduated in a normal time, and um, his grades were good. Uh, he he apparently did fairly well in school. He certainly considered himself to be uh, very intelligent. Um, I think he was smart around some things. He did he did have he was artistic. You know he had a he was creative. He he could draw. He could draw, and he could. Um, he had a, a way of putting things together, you know what I mean? Kind of a, 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 an ability to um, compose, you know, a picture or a, a scene. Um, and I, and he, he was, so he was interested in, and I think that's part of why he was interested in art. Um, I mean, he had been collecting art of various types and, and, and uh, antiquities, I believe, since 1965, when, he, you know, right as he was graduating and moving into the, to, to, to go to Kansas City. And uh, so I think that uh, um, he, he was in, he, he was given the chance to uh, accelerate his studies. But, you know, they, like I said, they didn't have gifted programs like they do now. They didn't have AP or anything like that. Um, so, um, but he was understood to be smart by his, by his teachers. He also didn't listen to what anybody said, you know, he kind of went his own way. He was known to be a little bit, well, a little bit of a troublemaker, a little bit headstrong, you know.
0: Do you know if he was uh, ever involved with like Mensa or uh, any of those kind of like high IQ systems? I don't
1: think so. I don't think so. The part, I mean, Bob. Bob was smart, but he had a lot of insecurities. He had a speech impediment. He had kind of a lisp, and that, especially when he got upset, um, it would really distinguish itself. And um, and he was gay, and he was not athletic at all. I mean, he was not a little tiny person, but he he was not, you know, a big, burly guy either. Um, and so he had a lot of insecurities. So um, he used his intellect as a kind of defense, you know.
0: Okay. So uh, when did you first uh, get to know Berdella?
1: Um, I, I actually got to know him when I was working at that bookstore that I mentioned because, uh, we our the bookstore where I worked was right at the corner of 39th and Maine in Kansas city. And it's a, that building is still there. It's an old building. I can't, it's, I think it has like a furniture shop in it or something now, but, uh, in the upper story, there was a print shop an independent small print shop, uh, it was called The Print Shop, and uh, and it catered specifically to the alternative communities, um, and because of, uh, you know, they kept the prices low and things like that, and so I actually met him there, beca- it, 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 at The Print Shop, because he was, getting some advertising printed up. And it was one of the jobs that I had at the bookstore was to put together our monthly newsletter. And I asked him if he, you know, we talked a little bit and I asked him if he wanted to put an ad in our newspaper for his store. Bizarre, Bizarre, Bob's Bizarre, Bizarre. And he said, sure. You know, and so basically he gave me like a, it was like a business size ad. And so that's how I first met him and it was just we both happened to use this print shop and so I became aware of his shop and so I'd go in there occasionally and then occasionally you know he would do like he would do some like promo things and 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 we would I would create a little ad for our store to go in his promo things so it was just so it was it was just normal stuff like that that's how I met him.
0: So so what was it like working for him then or with him?
1: Well, um, well, and first it's important to understand the context in which I worked with him. It that was some years later. It was in the late 80s. It was uh I, I believe it was uh like 1986 to 1987. So it was it was um well, yeah, something like that, 86, 87, 88. It was right before um and right before he was like a year before year and a half before he was arrested Um, and i wasn't working at that bookstore anymore that bookstore had changed hands Um, i had just started going back to school uh to get my master's degree and i just i needed some extra work i you know i had a couple of part-time jobs but i needed some extra work and and so he it it happened that one of the places that i was working uh, Part time, um, the guy that I was working for uh, happened to be a business consultant of Bordella's and had his power of attorney did his taxes for him. So uh, Bob, I, I apparently over, I can't even remember how it happened now, but he, he either overheard me talking to to Harold. That was the guy that I was working for that that you know gave those business things to Bob. Um, he either overheard me talking to him or Harold told him But anyway, I, he offered me this part-time position where I'd work like two or three days a week at his shop. And honestly, most of the time it was just normal retail work, um, you know i i basically helped you know i set up i set up displays i i unpacked inventory i sorted inventory i did customer service you know all those things that you do in a retail shop there was nothing unusual about what we were doing except that some of the stuff that we dealt in was kind of unusual you know what i mean um uh, so, you know, some of the artifacts. And he and he didn't just sell those artifacts. I mean, he sold a whole range of things, including, you know, all these beads that he had. He loved, I have to tell you, he loved those trade beads. There was this big, huge book that had been published in like 1985 or 1986 that was like the first encyclopedic compendium of trade beads in the world. And it was a really large book. And he loved that book. And he kept copies of that book to sell. And he, I mean, and he would go on and on and on and on (laughs) talking about this bead and that bead. And I mean, he he was genuinely fascinated with these beads. I think that, um, and he had, as from an early time in his life, he had maintained pen pal relationships with people, at least he claimed he did, with people in different parts of the world About these beads, and I think that that's that may be how he set up some of his early contacts in some of these places, you know, to get antiquities or or stuff. But you know, these were all places that he could never visit because he could never afford it. Uh, But um, you know, he was genuinely fascinated by those things. So my work there wasn't that weird. Uh, You know, there were occasionally um, things that happened, like. bob you know he owned his own store so he kind of set his own rules um he he there were some people he didn't particularly like you know like he he didn't like good old boys coming in the store um he didn't like um people with um confederate flags coming in the store which you will get sometimes in missouri um and he would he would throw people like that out um so, you know, but it was his store, so he could decide who he was going to throw out and who he's going to let stay in, you know, so if if somebody, if somebody got some attitude with him, you know, he, he could have attitude right back, you know, he just, he didn't put up with that kind of stuff. Um, and if, and if he thought, if he thought you were stupid, he would talk down to you. I mean, I, I do remember that he never talked down to me. But, you um, you know, I guess I, he liked me um, for whatever reason. I mean, he considered me one of his friends, which, you know, when I think about that now is kind of weird, um, but, you know, my relationship with him from a business standpoint was purely that um, he always paid me on time. He always paid me at the end of every day in cash. He never cheated me. Um, he, (laughs) you know what I mean? It's like, what can I tell you? It was, it was normal work.
0: All right. So what was the most disturbing incident then that you experienced with Bratella?
1: Well, um, let me see here. It wasn't, it wasn't really, there weren't really deeply disturbing incidents at the store that I can recall. Um, in fact, probably the most disturbing thing that happened happened later, you know, after he'd been arrested and everything. The only other the only event that I can think of right off the top of my head, um, that was disturbing was the Bob occasionally was invited to gatherings or or parties that had were held by friends or business associates, people that he knew. And there was one party that he that uh, that was um, held by a friend of mine uh, that he showed up at, and he showed up at this party with a very very young boyfriend. Now this this young boyfriend did not end up being one of his victims, okay? And I, no, I have no idea what their relationship was really like, but they were both really altered on something. They were both on some, they were taking drugs of some type. I have no idea of what. Bob's behavior then was very strange. He was, um, the only thing I can say is that there, it, there, it felt like there was this edge or this darkness to his, his mood at the time. And it was so much so that the hosts of the party felt like they had to figure out kind of a skillful way of getting him to leave because he was kind of scary and i guess they were kind of afraid that he might get violent but um they he did leave i mean they got him to leave um so that's the only time i ever witnessed anything now there are many people that i know including some of my friends who say that they always got like a creepy vibe off of him. Like they didn't even like coming into the store because they got a creepy vibe off off of him. And I, you know, that may be true. I may just have a really high tolerance for weird, you know. Um, The only notable incident really for me um, occurred actually later after he was arrested and after he was, you know, in prison. I was reading the one true crime book that had been written about him, which I believe is called like burial rights or something like that. Um, And as part of the book, it duplicates entries from one of his diaries in which he describes everything that he's doing to his victims. All right. And, and in the aftermath of disposing of them once they're dead, I read an entry in the book where he describes being late coming back from lunch at the store because he was having difficulty dismembering a body. And so he wrote this, you know, like in his diary. And I checked the date um, when I read that and set, realized really suddenly that the date and the day corresponded exactly with a Saturday where, where I had been working at the store and he had come back quite late from lunch. And I'd noticed when he came back that his mood had changed he was quiet and, and sullen and kind of kept to himself. Normally we sort of would chit chat and just kind of, you know, light talk around the store, you know, while I was working. And that as he moved past me at one point, I was in the back sorting beads. I had detected a faint odor that I could place. And when I read the passage, I suddenly realized that the odor had been that of a dead human body which i have encountered before but couldn't place it at the time and so it was i i was basically i was reading in a book i was able to place myself in the book you know what i mean place where i was when he had come when he'd come back and that freaked me out you know you
0: can imagine that's
1: oh my god you know i i mean i i had to put the book i mean i, I actually threw the book across <laughs> couldn't read it for a long time after that couldn't even finish it because it was just too bizarre
2: yeah
0: Yeah, that is insane
1: grossed me completely out
0: (laughs) oh yeah 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 i mean that's something when you uh realize i mean yeah you were uh, standing by a co-worker who had just um been disposing or dismembering of a body
1: yeah right yeah exactly
0: oh yeah yeah yeah.
1: my god you know and uh, so, but what that what that does is that places the the, oh, the other the other weird thing that happened was I guess and thinking about that is is how close I came to being arrested. Uh, the day before he was arrested, I was working with that Harold Rice guy. There are a lot of synchronicities in all of this. Um, I was I was working at Harold Rice's office and Bob came in to, I don't know, this was a Friday. He came in to do some business with Harold and, and he apparently had an appointment and I, uh, you know, I was there at the front desk cause I was often there at the front desk and, and he, Bob and I talked a little bit because, well, Harold was always running behind schedule and Bob said some really weird stuff to me. He said, um, he, he told me how he had that he he had, he understood that he, I'd had a cold and he'd heard that I'd been ill. And so he said, well, you know, I have some penicillin here if you want some. Um, and I said, no, that's okay. Because I, I don't just take antibiotics from anybody anyway. Um, but he actually gave me some, anyway. I actually still have one of the, the old degraded capsules of penicillin that he gave me, which I never took. Um, but he told me that, um, that he had always considered me to be one of his friends and that um, he, he felt like he could talk to me and that, um, that you know that I had an understanding about relationships or something something like that. And I just thought it was at the time when he told me, I just thought it was really weird. I was like, why is he telling me this? You know? And so that he went on, you know, afterwards and, you know, went to have his meeting with Harold and then left. And so it was because of that conversation that I decided I would go into the store the next day, which was a Saturday, which was often one of the days I worked. And so I went in and, uh, um, and there was a, a guy named Russ, who actually is a very well-known jeweler in Kansas City now, but he had he had rented a small area of Bob's uh, of, of Bob's shop for himself. And I came in and Russ said, Is it possible that you could work the, the counter for a little bit? Bob went to lunch and he's never come back. And I was like, okay, yeah, I can do that for a little bit. So I worked for like an hour. And while I worked, at I got this, these really weird internal impulses, which I never get. I got these weird internal impulses, like this voice in my head that kept saying, why don't you just like take some of this stuff, take some of these objects, you know, say, take, you know? I mean, I was getting like the impulse to steal things from the store which I didn't, I didn't take anything. And so finally, after working there about an hour, I said to Russ, and Bob never showed back up. I said to Russ, you know, I didn't come in here to work. I just came in to say hi to Bob. I I, I can't stay here any longer. And so Russ is like, okay, you know, I'll try to figure out how to deal with this. So I left. Well, 15 minutes later, the police invaded the, the, the flea market, shut the whole place down, impounded his shop because the reason he'd never returned is that he'd received a phone call from the police because his last victim had had escaped and had gotten out of the house and had i mean obviously was not dead you know the person he had he was going to probably kill eventually and had contacted the neighbors and they would called the police and the police had called bob at the store and said Um, we've, we've got testimony from this guy about you. Um, we can come down to the store and arrest you, or you can come to your house and be arrested. And so that's why he'd never come back. But if I had stayed at the store for another 15 minutes, basically they impounded the store and they took all of the customers and everybody that was in the store to the police station. (laughs) And, And, and I missed it by like 15 minutes. And, and, to, and to make the synchronicity even weirder, okay? When I first talked about all of this on the Conspiranormal podcast just a, year, a little over, what, 18 months ago, and I was contacted by that individual, that, that individual who was, is the, the relative of one of the victims, and we were able to compare notes and stuff, one of the first things that that person shared with me was the obituary for that Harold Rice person that had held Bob's power of attorney he had just died like a month before and i thought to myself this is bizarre 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 <laughs> you know it's like how strange is that that you know i'm contacted by the niece of the of, of a victim um, of of Bob's, after I've talked about Bob and then Harold dies, I don't even know what to think about all that, you know, so I don't.
0: yeah, that's just absolutely insane.
1: Is that crazy? It's,
0: yeah, yeah, it's,
1: it's like, you know, I I, I I don't know that I want to think about what all of that means. <laughs> so anyway. Those are the weird things surrounding Bob.
0: All right. Well, tell us a bit about the drugs Bob was using specifically. What was it about ketamine he was supposedly doing uh, with it?
1: Okay. Yeah. That, like, like I indicated, Bob had been involved in sort of very low level drug trafficking for a long time. And what I mean by low level, it was like marijuana most of the time. You know what I mean? Um, it was not serious drugs. I mean, in the 1960s and 70s, you could get in trouble with the police for, the, for that. And he, he had several uh, drug convictions for that um, and fines and things that he had to pay on uh, for a number of years. Um, he also did a brief stint as an orderly in a hospital. And so he became aware of different types of controlled substances um, and how they were used. And so um, the ketamine specifically, my understanding is, um, and this is based on the research that this individual did. Okay. uh, Who contacted me, the ketamine uh, was used at least Bob procured it, Officially, in order to uh, in order to use it on some Chow dogs that he kept uh, in his backyard in a pen, um, and of course, he, I, according to him, what he told me is he kept them sort of as guard dogs because they would raise a racket, you know, when, if somebody tried to come into the yard. Um, the place where he lived, the neighborhood that he lived in. I lived in this neighborhood too. In fact, when he was arrested, I, w- I only lived like two and a half blocks up from him. Um, but the neighborhood is, at least at that time, was not a great neighborhood. There was a lot of gang activity, um, a lot of shootings, and a lot of uh, uh, armed robbery and you know breaking in houses and stuff. And so he kept these dogs in the back and the ketamine was used supposedly for them. And he procured it from a vet in North Kansas city that he did an antiquity uh, that he traded antiquities with. Um, uh, in fact, he got, apparently he, he, to get this ketamine, he would get this guy antiquities and they would do sort of a barter, a trade on that. Um, so that cash wouldn't have to exchange hands, but we also know that he probably used this ketamine on his victims. Um, there, there is some question among detectives um, what kinds of drugs he used on his victims Um, it's pretty clear other than ketamine it's pretty clear that he at least according to his own records um occasionally got control uh, got a hold of other controlled substances like thorazine which of course is a psychotropic and a variety of things like that um and the only way you can get stuff like that is through the drug trade. Um, so he didn't take this stuff himself, all right Th- These were things that he experimented with on his victims. So in order to control them um, as to what kind of drugs he used himself, I'm not clear on that, honestly. Um, he would occasion- I know he used marijuana. Um, he may have used uh, kind of an early version of ecstasy at one po- at one time, but he was very controlled about the drug use on himself because he was obsessed with control. And so that that time that I described when he came to the party and he was altered on something, that was unusual. And I don't know what he was taking. Okay? But what's interesting to me is that the police have really equivocated about the drugs that he was associated with, and it's not—I'm sh- not sure why. Um, because normally they're pretty open about that kind of thing, you know. Oh yeah, he did this, and he did this, and he did this. But they've—but there's been sort of a, a, a kind of a silence that's been put on that, and. And that's always been sort of one of my questions, like why?
0: If I could uh, interject here for a moment, I was I was very intrigued by the use of ketamine in this particular time frame in the 80s. And also, as you have just mentioned, the possibility that he might have been experimenting with an early form of MDMA. Um, mm-hmm. Are you uh, familiar with Project Coast? I've heard of it. It was a South African program that was established in the 1980s that was uh, primarily run by their special forces. Um, the infamous, what was it, Boutre bassoon or something like that, the so-called Dr. Death, who was eventually put on trial uh, in the late 90s, was the guy who had headed it. Um, in the 90s, he was uh, actually convicted of uh, trafficking a rather substantial amount of uh, MDMA but even before then uh during the 1980s uh Project Coast it did a lot of um strange things and one of them was testing MDMA and uh, ketamine as crowd control substances um but I mean also uh, given this particular time frame this was you know obviously the waning years of apartheid South Africa um you know we know there's been a pretty conclusive evidence coming out that some of the special operations forces were involved in trafficking ivory for instance from endangered species and some of the nature preserves there during the time frame to raise money because they didn't have access to conventional funds and they have wars and you know human rights to violate and all this kind of thing you know costs money so given that. You know many of the individuals associated with project coast were rather were later implicated in drug trafficking in the 90s and that strange things happened like the uk you know having the largest anti-apartheid movement in the world by the mid to late 80s and then you know being uh, flooded with mdma um during that same time frame while south africa had a pretty substantial Uh, intelligence apparatus operating in europe is all very interesting so for that reason as well it's it's fascinating that he would end up with those particular drugs especially since as we get into our um our later topic i know you know when you get into some of those republican national officials they um they uh we're not unopposed to apartheid and um knew some of the figures linked into all of that so who knows that's um that's an interesting thing though to consider because that's uh it's one of the elements of the cold war i mean we always talk you know when you get into iran contra about the aspects with central america and um obviously what was going on with afghanistan but there was a very brutal war fought in angola um it was essentially again another proxy war in this case um with the cuba and uh, south africa standing in for the ussr and uh, the united states respectively and it it was a very substantial part in the u.s's victory uh, i think in the cold war because it really decimated cuba's forces and cost russia a lot of money but um a lot of very unsavory things happened uh, to bring that about, to put it mildly. So, you know, this is kind of all unfolding, I guess, around the same era. So it's it's fascinating.
1: Right. Oh, and I forgot to mention, he did use certain types of pain medication, like um, he um he he. I know he used per, uh, some type of Percocet kind of stuff at one point because he had some injuries. Uh, that he, in fact, he had some injuries that had been inflicted on him by one of his victims. Um, One of his victims fought back and uh, at a certain point, and he had to go to the doctor and have um, stitches and uh, some surgical procedure done. And so he, I I know that he um, was given something for the pain, Um, for that i think it was percocet or something like that and he he sought to maintain his his supply of that once he experienced it you know what i mean so uh so i i think that there were some narcotics like that floating around as well you know opioid kinds of things
0: so no it's not entirely surprising opioids seem to turn up in a and a lot of other interesting things but um or so how about the 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 whole thing with the wiccan priest who was brought in for uh for by the detectives
1: okay yeah this this was this was something that i found out about as a result of um as a result of this of this individual who um is the relative of one of the victims um, they surreptitiously taped a, 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 a question and answer series um, that was done by by the individual who had been the lead detective uh, on Verdella's case. Um, and this person came to talk to like a, you know, a criminal investigation course, a class or something at UMKC in, in Kansas City. And according to this individual, um, in order to try to get Bob to confess to his crimes, uh, they consulted the FBI at Quantico about how to kind of psychologically uh, dupe or psych uh, Bob into, into revealing things. And so they, they gave all the information that they had to the, to the FBI and the FBI developed a profile Apparently about Bradella, and then advised them that given what Bradella's stated beliefs seemed to be, his spiritual beliefs seemed to be, and based apparently on something that Bob had said, which it's difficult for me personally to believe that Bob said this except in jest, because Bob would make stuff up and just lie about it, you know, just to psych other people out. I've I've watched him do this. Um, but um according to the fbi according to the detective um it, it was determined that the only thing that could kind of like psychically break bob's dark obsessions his dark fantasies was was the power of a and this is how we put it a white wiccan priest which to me is bizarre because wicca is white magic anyway so it's like what does that mean i don't know what a white wiccan priest is but anyway Um, So the ruse was that um, that it wasn't that the white that this Wiccan priest was going to confront Bob. The the ruse was was that um, what the FBI suggested is that they find somebody with these credentials, somebody who's a Wiccan priest with these credentials and have this individual supply them with a ring that would symbolize their power whatever that ring would be, I'm not, I don't know what it would be. It was the ring has never been described. And, uh, and so what the idea was, was that the, the lead investigator, this detective who himself did this would wear this ring and then question Bob. And when, when the, the questioning reached a certain pitch, he would, he would flash this ring at Bob and, um, And supposedly that would cause Bob's psych, you know, his psychological whatever to crack. And then he would realize that um, the, the detective was like, had the power of this Wiccan priest. All right. Well, it didn't work. Number one, the ruse didn't work. Bob saw the ring. Apparently they tried this and Bob just clammed up and asked for his lawyer. But when, when, the detective went on and continued to talk about this a little bit. I realized that I probably knew who the people, the person was who they contacted. Um, Bob did have a few uh, contacts in the neo-pagan community because he sold. uh, There were, there were, there were like two or three neo-pagan jewelers that he sold their jewelry at the store. Okay. Um, and one of these families of, of Wiccans, one of these families um, actually worked at the Kansas City Renaissance Festival as well and had sort of a, a fairly, was developing a large kind of jewelry um, trade just sort of on their own. And, um, and they were set up to create custom pieces That was one of the things they did. And they were kind of unique in the Kansas City area for doing that sort of thing. Um, And because they knew Bob already um, and apparently had been um, interrogated by the police. And the reason I know this is because I was not interrogated initially by the police. I was questioned later. I found out from this individual, who I believe is the person who supplied the ring, um, I found out that they had dissuaded, this is what they told me, they had dissuaded the police from talking to me. Uh, I don't know how they did that, uh, but they had somehow convinced the police, so they told me that I knew nothing about what, which I had didn't actually know anything about what about what bob had been doing with victims and stuff like that and so this individual though was the only person because i was in the neo-pagan community in kansas city at the time this person was the only person that i know of who could have made that claim to the police and come up with a ring you see now this particular individual has since passed they're dead um and um they worked in the on the uh renaissance festival circuit for a number of years and the woman that was with him at the time has since gone on and and gotten married and she's to somebody else and is doing jewelry somewhere down in virginia somewhere i don't even i haven't been in contact with her for a really long time so um but that that that's the story there. I mean, it's like I don't really want to reveal names because some of these people are still around and probably don't want me to, you know, connect them to Bob. Uh, but um I'm pretty sure that the reason why Bob clammed up is because this police detective showed him the ring and Bob recognized the style because he knew their jewelry. <laughs> I looked at them it was like oh yeah right it's him <laughs> you know i will tell you this ironically the ironically the name of the guy who who was the uh, wicked priest i can give you his one of his one of his um names he was also called bob and it was it was because uh he was also called bob that we started calling him bobby or Robbie instead so that we would confuse him with Bertella down the road isn't that weird yeah
0: yeah 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 well I mean as long as he wasn't Bob Dobbs anyway
1: no no he wasn't Bob Dobbs nor nor was he the Twin Peaks Bob
0: yeah no I was just that was making me think like there's just a lot of weird associations with Bob and that kind of stuff oh there's (laughs) Bob the Goon from the first Batman movie um oh um okay so can you at least say if the renaissance fair circuit you're talking about was it connected to the society of creative anachronisms
1: well the the society for creative anachronism um they participated with the renaissance festival okay renaissance festival was not theirs but the, the 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 society for creative anachronism always had a presence there
0: okay okay
1: and probably still does i'd imagine
0: yeah, well I mean almost likely. I think they're still like the the biggest organization for that kind of thing in the US, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Um all right, so my understanding is that uh the interrogation that you went through or um one of the things that helped you make the connection between Down and the franklin scandal it occurred at the interrogation or um was that later
1: well it was later it, oh, okay, okay. i mean there were elements of the interrogation that were very curious to me the timing some of the questions um i didn't know about the franklin scandal at the time it wasn't until much much later that i realized the, what the import of some of the questions that the policeman was asking me basically what happened is that after bob was sent to jeff city you know to the state pen um and i was in i remained in some contact with bob by the way because um his i was still working for harold rice and harold was still has still had his power of attorney So every now and then Bob would call the office and I would answer the phone and have conversation with him on the phone. So that went on for like a year or two uh, until I quit working at that place. Um, But it was some months after Bob had gone to prison at my apartment, I was a a policeman, a detective or somebody who identified themselves as such. You know, they had the badge and everything. Uh, They said they wanted to talk to me if I had some time and I was like, okay, whatever, you know, just it's a Friday or Saturday or whatever it was. And so he came in and for about an hour and a half or so, he asked me a series of questions. He had brought uh, stuff from Bob's evidence locker, photos uh, of, of, of people that they couldn't identify and you couldn't tell really whether these people were alive or dead. I couldn't anyway in the pictures. People that were not individuals that Bob admitted to killing. See, Bob had been suspected in the disappearance of several people prior um, to his first initial victims. In fact, the uh, there had been a task force that had been put together to watch him for several years prior to um, his first official victim. Um, And, and this has to do specifically with, with victims that later became associated with as possibly being connected to child trafficking. They were younger. uh, They were teenagers, Um, and I don't know the names of any of them, but this is just something that I found out about again, through this individual, um, who shared information with me. And some of that stuff is still kind of sealed. It's still kind of hush hush, you know, at, at the level of investigation. Um, but he was asking me if I knew any of these people, if I knew whether or not Bob, was connected to any other groups um, and I, th- I think you know at the time, of course I didn't know you know at, the, at, at all anything about any of it at the time and, and it became very clear to the to the policeman that I didn't. But that all kind of stuck in my brain so that when I started finding out about the Franklin scandal and kind of the scope of it, Um, I realized that there were some weird sort of connections in time. Like, for example, when Bob was arrested, Bob was arrested at approximately the same time that, that Lawrence King was, was going through his trial, you know, that all of that stuff in Omaha was coming to a head. And, um, and on top of that, um, I mean, Omaha is less than two and a half hours from Kansas City. I mean, I had known from earlier in my life, um, earlier in my life being the early 1980s, like 1981, 82, when I, I myself spent some time on the street because I had an alcohol problem. And um, I was homeless for about six, six months, nine months and living out of my car. And I was very specifically warned by some street people who were nice to me that uh, to avoid certain parts of Kansas City, some of which were close to places where Bob hung out, um, later, later I found out Bob hung out, or that you know there were, there were some places where just gay men would hang out as well. But these, these were also known as places where uh, drug trafficking Um, contacts were made. And there was one motel in particular, which has since been torn down uh, where uh, people were were kids, teenagers who were being trafficked were held. And I was warned about all that stuff, you know, by other people on the street, you know, to avoid those areas. So I kind of knew that there, that there were those kinds of networking connections um, but one of the places where Bob would look for his victims, and he admitted it. I mean, this is one of the places he trolled, was um, at the bus stop, uh, which uh, which is, you know, m- many, 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 even today, many, many buses come in from Omaha every single day. Um, and you know, Omaha was sort of the hub. Of of both sex and dro- and um, d- human and drug trafficking at the time, and so it's to it to me it's like it's rather impossible for me to believe that you know Bob knew absolutely nothing about it. Um, I mean, what we have to remember about the Franklin scandal, uh, what it was specifically, it wasn't it wasn't. It wasn't um, Larry King himself, Lawrence King himself, that was the big scandal. I mean, he was a rather low level player who who had, you know, created a bunch of savings and loans. Um,
0: yes, I just I wanted to interject right quick. By the way, first we're not talking about the the famous Larry King. The no,
1: no, 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 no. This is this everybody.
0: Is... It just usually when you, if you say Larry King, everything <laughs> everybody. <laughs> comes no, we're, not,
1: we're not talking about that yeah, the, we're
0: not talking about that Larry King. No, I just want to be clear on this, that.
1: Yeah, we're talking about a different dude who. And I, that's I that's just why I said Lawrence King, um, who you know he had created a a chain of of savings and loans that were basically shell companies. And he ran them out of of Omaha. And unfortunately he used them, well, he would use them to launder money essentially um, for his uh, human and drug trafficking concerns. Um, But he also built lots of African-Americans. He was an African-American himself. I don't even know if he's still alive, but he built uh, his his customers um, out of, you know, who knows how many millions of dollars doing this because you know um his stuff folded at exactly the same time that you had the the um savings and loan crisis in the united states you know it's sort of that's sort of what exposed him but what made it a scandal was because it was he called it franklin savings alone what made it a scandal was not him per se because he was a rather low level player what made it a scandal was that his operation plugged into several larger syndicates that at, when he was, when he was um, under trial, you know, in the investigation that like Nick Bryant has done and stuff, indicated that these larger syndicates were like international in scope and that what he was doing was feeding victims and drugs into that essentially you know he had plugged into that and so it's really difficult for me to believe that bob was not connected in some way even tangentially to that i mean one of the things that bob did tell the the police and again you know it's hard for me to know whether this is real or whether he's just being a bullshitter (laughs) frankly because he again he would do that sometimes but he told the police they asked him once why did you write all this stuff down you know why did you keep all these meticulous records particularly when you know we've obviously been able to use them to to convict you and indict you right and one of his he had several responses but one of his responses was well because you know there are other people that i'm connected to out there that if they ever want to torture and kill people, I've given them a manual. And, you know, it's kind of, that's kind of spooky. There were some of the photos that the police, that the detective showed me that clearly had to have been taken by third parties, you know, because Bob was in the picture. How far that went or whether he was part of an SM ring I mean, you know, like a, you know, a, or a snuff ring that, that I have no idea.
0: Yeah, it is chilling. So uh, like, when did you make the initial connections between Bradella and Franklin?
1: Maybe about five or six years ago. Um, I was just doing some general reading about, um, about other things, you know, uh, I, I mean, I think what it was honestly was that I was doing some tangential reading about some of the Palaudes disappearance cases, you know um, you know, his four one, one series. Um, and I so I was doing some reading about urban disappearances and, and somehow that got me on to, a human trafficking angle, because there's a part of me that thinks and still thinks that some uh, when Pallaudis is specifically talking about urban cases that he's that there that in that at least some of the stuff that he's talking about have to do with human trafficking in some way or another. I know he disagrees with that. I don't care. I think he's wrong about some stuff. And um, so anyway, I was doing that kind of research, just kind of looking into it. And I think one of the sources I was looking at referenced it. And and uh, then I read I got Nick Bryant's book because uh, it referenced his book. And I started reading that book. And there are several things in the book that just sort of i don't know you know it's things just kind of associated things just ping in your mind you know and you're like yeah
0: yeah you see just like one thing and then it like leads to like a half a dozen other ones yeah it's like
1: it's like you, you know i remember so and so saying something about this and about this and about this in fact there was this one big there's like this i'd have to go look it up now but there were like three or four pages in the middle of his book and he's talking about Kansas city and he's talking about like connected hubs to Omaha. And it was like, I got this really strong image of, of just certain places in Kansas city that I remember from when I lived on the street that I, I, I can't even, I can't even express this right. That I not only was I told to avoid, but, I remember just a particular kind of darkness about, I remember there was one instance where um, in front of this motel that used that used to exist, there was like this uh, fountain. And I remember that there was an instance where several kids, maybe one or two kids were found dead in that fountain. And there were all these questions about how they got there. This and this was like years ago. This was like in the late seventies, early eighties, and uh, there was just something. I it, but from there, I just started researching the Franklin scandal. You know what I mean? And the more I researched it, the more I and, and looked at the time scales, looked at the you know just looked at sort of what the connections were. It started to click with some of the things that the that the police officer had been asking me. Um, I was like, oh, he was asking me if I knew about. Bob's, if I knew whether Bob was connected to this, 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 and this, you see. So that's that's where that came from. It was it was sort of a gradual thing. And all of that was just like in the last four or five years. Um, but I get I think what's weird to me personally is that I've been really close it's kind of like what Peter LaVenda talks about when he says, you know, he finds it really strange that he has been really close to some of the weirdest things that have ever happened, but he himself has not like actually dipped his foot in it. It's just been kind of like happening off to the side and, and he's been like witness to these bizarre synchronicities. And that's kind of how I feel about it. You know, it's like, um, you know, I've sort of been shielded from it in a weird sort of way, but it was, it's been happening, you know, like around me, like it probably happens around all of us, you know, it's, it's been happening around me, you know, like down the street for me and this dude that I work with, Bob, you know, and that's, that's so gradually over time, I just sort of realized that he had to have had some connection to some, to something connected to it, if you will, keeping in mind that, that, that the franklin that the you know the franklin savings and loan part of all of this was just a small piece of a much larger syndicate puzzle you know what i mean
0: yeah and i mean this all tied into dc with uh what was it craig jace uh spence i think
1: right well yeah i mean i mean what it implies
0: he was a big dc lobbyist i should add. yeah what
1: what it, i mean what it implies is, uh, you know, what, those, what the Franklin scandal implies was basically, was basically some of the things, not all, but some of the things that, that you know, QAnon accuses some people of.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: That it was really other people <laughs> who were doing it, you know what I mean?
0: It's, yeah, 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 well, there a lot of especially yeah yeah a lot of people connected to the christian right and a lot of other things and then well there's also the whole bizarre aspect of it being exposed um what was it in the washington times which was um run by the moonies right exactly it's outed by like a cult more or less but
2: it's a very
0: everything about the the franklin scandal is just bizarre uh, right. much well, like the shop.
1: <laughs> and, and 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 the other part of this too is that bob had always intimated to me and he did he said this to me even in prison and to others constantly that the Kansas City Missouri police were corrupt and were basically permitting these kinds of trades you know drug and and human trafficking in order to occasionally profit off of those things themselves at least some of the officers were he basically saw the police as kind of arch hypocrites, if you will, uh, preying on gay people. Well, you have to remember.
0: Yeah, uh, this is the eighties. Yeah, the,
1: yeah, you have to remember that SCOTUS had not yet voided sodomy laws in the U.S. And and when Bob was arrested, they actually held him on a sodomy charge, mm-hmm. which in Missouri at a, at the time, if that
0: like was a felony or something, Yeah,
1: there. you could be. You it was like you know, a mandatory 15-year sentence in in jet pen in, in you know in 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 the um state pen. So um now when the detective who was secretly recorded was actually asked point blank about why he thought the Berdella case has been buried, you know, fewer people know about it than than most other serial killers. Um What was really interesting in in that interview is that he's asked this question like point blank directly and he stops and he hedges and he lowers his voice like really low. And he basically just says, well, it has to do with political realities at the police department at the time. That's literally what he said.
2: Yeah,
0: yeah.
1: And it's like, oh, yeah, right what are those political realities
0: well I mean it, I mean to me it actually Berdella reminds me a lot of um um, um Mark to uh in Belgium I don't know if you're familiar with that case um but he uh abducted several minors, and uh, he owned several properties around Belgium where I mean he had underground facilities that he kept them in like literal cages and all this uh good stuff but there were there have been persistent allegations and there was actually an enormous march in um the capital brussels uh, in the late i think it might have been 1999 that more or less shut the entire government down i think it was like over a million people but there were persistent allegations that besides detroit abducting and raping and murdering these miners he was also procuring other ones and they were Uh, ending up with the political class in Belgium and uh, some of these figures that were implicated uh, were also a part of some of these um, you know these sort of European very far-right groups like uh, which Mm -hmm. had a lot of overlap with um, you know some of the figures in the book or in the uh, Reagan Bush White House who were also tied into Franklin at the time so it's it's very interesting to me on a lot of levels, uh, just the sort of similarities with that, and also, of course, the allegations that there was also, I mean, drug trafficking and a lot of other things linked with Detroit, you know, in addition to these girls. But, I mean, it was also basically a situation where it seems like his main racket was more human trafficking and the um the other stuff was maybe more of a side preoccupation of his or something to that effect
1: right well and you know when and now that i think about it it's kind of like um you know i'm sure that there had to have been an overlap between some of the places where Burdella got his drugs and, and these, this antiquities trade. Um, because I mean, even on a most basic level, you know, he got some of his drugs from this vet who has never been identified by the way. And, and the police apparently didn't interview him much. He's just kind of disappeared. Um, you know, and, and Bob got at least some of his drugs from him. Um, you know and traded antiquities for them you know so that that it's kind of like a lot of the and a lot of the, the the really valuable antiquities he had were clearly you know part of the contraband under underground trade in antiquities
0: yeah and i mean again this is during the whole you know iran contra era where i mean there would have been a need to raise funding you know through unconventional methods to buy arms and things like that So right. I Antiquities might be something that there would be, have been a quite a lucrative trade in at this particular time in history, sadly. Um uh, so how about like some of the allegations of Badell, possibly uh, the drug trafficking that he was uh, doing being linked to uh Franklin? I've heard that there were some allegations of that, right?
1: Right. Well, that that's been a suspicion. Um, and the the and because of the alleged nature of some of the drugs that he was able to to get you know some of the controlled substances like thorazine and you know other psychotropics which you really can't get anywhere else except through some kind of an illicit trade um because of the nature of them so i mean it's interesting because the police kind of poo-poo some of this and yet some of the questions that I was asked by the detective seemed to indicate to me, at, even at the time, that there was more going on there with the drugs. And, and keep in mind, he used these drugs in order to control his victims and to experiment on them, essentially. Um, but that there was more going on there than, than what first appeared. I don't know the, the extent of it. But um, if you just take his victim profile into account, he, he, at least at the time uh, from 1984 to 1987, when he was most active, um, he wouldn't have used human trafficking um, to to get his victims because most of the human trafficking at the time, especially connected to the Franklin scandal, uh, dealt with minors. You know the connection with boys town in 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 nebraska and stuff like that and so um the the one minor that i know that he killed um was not a victim of human trafficking it was the son of a of a of, of a business rival and he killed this and he killed this young man in order to get back at his business rival so it didn't have anything to do with that but the drugs just the type of drugs that he's alleged to have used. Um, you, you, you would have to be able to get them somewhere, you know? And so that's where I've seen the connection, either that or, or his possible relationship with, um, you know, sex, you know, sadomasochistic sex rings or something. Um, and, and, so and, whether he how he was attached to that at the very it would have been at the beginning of his killing torturing career because by the time he got into it himself he was very much about um, doing it himself and controlling it himself so it would have had to have been sort of at the beginning of his foray into all of that the sex trafficking part if he was involved in that so I think it's mostly the drugs and it just has to do with the types of drugs that he allegedly used that's
0: yeah yeah no like i said that's why I, um again i'm kind of curious because i mean i i do think apartheid south africa was most likely was supplying a lot of the illicit um, mdma in the world in the 1980s uh, because they were producing quite a bit of it for project coast so that does raise a lot of um other interesting aspects of what some of the trafficking might have been used to fund besides the usual suspects uh in terms of the uh, milieu around uh, these circles during the uh, Iran Contra era um but you know you've already talked a bit about how you were contacted by someone after you did uh the conspiranormal appearances uh do you have any further details about that that you can uh, share with us
1: well um I mean, most of what I've most I've I've talked a lot about what um, what this individual shared. I mean, what I will say is that they don't really they don't really want their identity to be known um, because um, they are in the process of continuing this investigation. And um, what I can tell you is that um, I shared, you know, we basically compared notes, you know, they they've continued to live in Kansas City and so they have access to a lot more stuff there than I do and so they asked me we probably exchanged over 50 emails and they sent me a lot of kind of additional information like newspaper information and archival information that I did not know about they also sent me a lot of information about how and this is weird and this is unusual about how Berdella's evidence locker was apparently raided uh, by um, the charges that the prosecuting attorney, not the defense attorney, but the prosecuting attorney agreed to allow individuals who had identified themselves as being relatives of Berdella. Which by the time Berdello was in prison, he hardly had any relatives left anymore. Um, and they basically raided his evidence locker, taking all kinds of things, you know, not only um, his, his notebooks and photograph, photograph albums, but also items that were associated with his victims that he had kept, you know, like, you know, the shirts, the bloody shirts that people had been killed in, and things like that. And, and we're selling them on the black market, selling them on the dark web. And there are people who collect specifically Berdella memorabilia. In fact, after I did the second Conspiranormal interview, I was contacted by one of these people asking if I had anything that I'd be willing to sell them. Of course, that offended me immensely, because basically these people are profiting on, on the victims essentially, you know, this individual that I talked to this, uh, this contact who contacted me, they were also able to help me um, track down the, a couple of the places that I, that had been pointed out to me as drug as human trafficking locations in Kansas city earlier in my life, no longer exist as such, you know, like, the buildings have been torn down, or something like that. But they were able to go through old ar- archival, um, you know, newspapers and stuff, and find interesting bits of information about the history of those of those places that they did exist, um, that they did have sort of the history that they like. The the reason that that motel no longer exists is it became so associated with human trafficking that they just tore it down um, in order to prevent it from being continued to be used that way. Um, And this person sent me a lot of extra, you know, just various types of bits and pieces of information that she'd uncovered, like, you know, uh, uh, things that Bob had said to uh, interviews, that Bob had uh, transcripts of interviews that she had gotten a hold of from the police department, you know, just stuff like that. And so I've, you know, I've shared as much of that as I can, Um, and then I was able to correct some things um, that she, that this individual had um, um, had questions about. They needed to know who I was, you know, and whether I knew certain people. And sometimes I did, and sometimes I didn't. They wanted to know about Bob's connection to the to the neo pagan community. So we basically checked each other's notes. Is what we did. Um, and, um, this individual is continuing to do research as much as they can about it. But the connections that, 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 I had made to the Franklin scandal, they had made the same connections independently with a little bit more information and, uh, and, uh, and which I've shared what, what of it, you know, about the drugs and stuff, um, that I've been that they were able to give me so it was they they said what they told me was I'm really surprised that that you made those associations with almost no data (laughs) was like well you know I do have a I do have a moderate talent for mediumship what can I tell you
0: Yeah, yeah yeah you
1: know I make good associations you know
0: yeah all right so as we uh, get into the home stretch here I wanted to get a little woo-woo and everybody so um let's talk about this ritual you performed to contact Berdella um but to start off with tell us about the magical system you were using for this particular ritual Just...
1: okay well there wasn't any one system um um at the time <laughs> when I did this um I, w- I was part of the neo-pagan community and I I was, I had been trained in a family tradition of what in the United States is called Ausatru. you know, it's Scandinavian, Germanic tradition. And, and I had also um, uh, done some work with Vajrayana Buddhism. So I knew something about those rituals. And I had, I was just in the process of joining an occult lodge, a ceremonial magic occult lodge. So the, the, what I basically did was no one tradition, but I, I, like I mentioned, I had, I had determined already by that time that I had a, I have a moderate talent in mediumship. I had already, I had, I had been practicing um, at, uh, I had been practicing a form of, I don't know if you're familiar with it. It's a form of, it's a form of full body possession trance work that is called Sather that is connected specifically to Scandinavian tradition. And so I knew how to go into trance. I knew how to make those kinds of connections, even do a little bit of what is now referred to as remote viewing. You know, in fact, I still do stuff like that, just sort of automatically when I'm checking stuff out, checking on people, checking on situations. And so basically what I did was I just, created what for myself was a circle it was my version of a circle and i just i just opened up a space like i usually do when i am doing my mediumship work so it, it's it's not any one tradition it's eccentric eclectic like i do and um, i describe it a little bit in one of the stories that I wrote um, for this lovecraft Um, the final Lovecraft I mean the uh, final seasons of Lovecraftian Quartet Um, basically what happened was I did the equivalent of opening the veil I guess that's what they call it in ceremonial magic and as soon as I did that I felt this incredible it's like everything in the room became very dark it was I did this during the day there was a there was a window that was um, shining light in and everything in the room got very dark. It was like the light had been cut off and it became very cold in the room. In fact, at the peak of this, it was so cold that I could, I could see my breath. That's how cold it got. And there was this darkness that sort of stepped into the room. It's the only way I can describe it. It's like, it just stepped into the room and I don't know that anybody objectively would have been able to see anything, you know, but in my mind, you know, the mind's eye, the, the, the in, intuitive eye, what I encountered was this immense darkness that seemed to have these sort of tendrils attached to it. Or I don't know if they were tentacles or um, or just tendrils of darkness that sort of reached out. In fact, um if you're if you're familiar with stranger things and uh, if you've seen that and in the second season they have the mind flare uh the way the mind flare exhibits itself this this kind of directed smoke cloud that's kind you know in fact when i first saw the mind flare i was like oh my god (laughs) it's kind of like that um and um and it and and it was behind it was behind this presence in front of me was Bob. And I couldn't see his face. I could just see a silhouette of him, like a like a flat shadow. And behind him, surrounding him, was this 10 10 tendril tentacle black oily thing. And when when I connected with Bob, I was just going to try to figure out, like, Bob, what is the truth? You know, what's going on here? Because what we were told was that he had been arrested for sodomy and and drug trade and drugs. Okay, and so I was like, why are they holding him then? You know, and uh, for that for all that because everybody knew he was guilty of those things anyway. And so as soon as I connected with him, he saw, he saw me. This is all internal. He saw me and he said to me, Shut this down. Do not come here. You do not want to, you do not want to be here. And he was just very direct like that. And so I did. I just said, okay. I'm happy to do that. <laughs> so I shut it down. I grounded everything and it went away. And unlike the character in the story, I'm not afraid of whatever that was. Um, what in the, the character in the story is afraid because of how it manifests in their life, uh, the thing that has stayed with me and what the story is attempting to explain or express is, you know, as a person who experienced this, who lived through this, I have to live with the question of his evil for the rest of my life. And I have to live with the question of what that means, you know, and, and why I was connected to that. And... Um, you know, why it didn't affect me like it affected some other people. Um, And so, you know, those are the kind of the questions that, 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 that I get for that from that. Um, But that's, that's the, you know, that's, that's the ritual basically. But, but it is interesting to me that I encountered this incredible darkness and and as I talk about in my book, in the in the introduction, um, when I wrote that story, because the stories in that book, a final a final season, those stories all emerged in a in a month period of time, and they all emerged sort of in the order that they're in the book. Uh, so. And, and whenever when I started writing each story, except for the the links, the third story, which was actually a dream that I had, as I describe it in the introduction, there were some really weird synchronicities that attended the writing of, of the of the story, head dreams that that has, that has the little vignette about that ex, that ritual experience with Bob's ghost shadow or whatever it was. And and they are very Lovecraftian. It's like I had I had a, I had two repeat, repeated dreams of Azathoth without even knowing who Azathoth was. Um, I had um, these bizarre synchronistic experiences with um, some stories about Azathoth with uh, one of uh, Peter Lavenda's uh, f- books, The Lovecraft Code. It was very strange. And so, you know, I don't know what all that means, except that um, it has some resonance for me somewhere. <laughs> you know, I don't, I, I don't consider myself a Lovecraftian um, expert in any way, shape, or form. But um, apparently there's enough of an egregore developed around all that stuff that it has its own existence and you can contact it.
0: That's fascinating. I was actually I kind of semi-touched by Lovecraft's whole like legacy as well. Uh I grew up in uh Daytona Beach, Florida. Um, but I like to spend a lot of time out in Casadega, which was uh this community that was uh founded actually by the Spiritist Church up there in was it Seneca, New York, or I believe um they had supposedly followed a spirit guide down to this area at the turn of the century uh the 19th to 20th century and set up uh Dega down there and it's um it's quite a place and uh for many years probably the closest community to it was a uh this town called the land Florida which is also quite charming in its own right or at least it was when I lived there uh but this is where um H.E. Barlow, I'm I'm not sure if those were but Barlow lived for many years with his family and um, this is where Lovecraft would come visit him uh, when he was a teenager. Uh, It was a very strange arrangement uh, because I guess apparently Barlow's parents had built a shed or something to that effect uh, outside of their house and Lovecraft and Barlow would stay in this shed together and discuss literature. deep into the night or something to that effect um but yes it was kind of remarkable to me when i found out later that uh, i had been around that whole area for many years uh, back when i was a kid so oh he's also with the native american mounds too that's been kind of a reoccurring motif right
1: right well lavenda talks about all of
0: yeah yeah that was one of the reasons why i was kind of drawn to his work because i've it seems like there's just certain things you know that you'll just reoccur throughout your life if you're on a certain vibration i guess and for me uh the uh, native american earthworks are a big thing i've always kind of had a special connection with
1: yeah it's 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 (laughs) I mean, I think what's interesting to me is that when I wrote those stories, I was not particularly thinking about Lovecraft when I wrote them. Um, and yet, um, as I wrote those stories, he kept coming up. You know what I mean? He just kept coming up. And um, and so what ended up happening is that not long after I wrote that um wrote that the stories for that book I actually was asked by a friend of mine who is an academic to write I was invited to write an academic paper on on Lovecraft and divination uh, for a, a for an academic journal out of I think of Virginia called the for the mythopoetic society of of tolkien and c.s lewis or something that's the name of the the journal but they were looking they were they were interested in kind of expanding their coverage and so they were doing one whole thing on like horror fiction or you know how divination shows up in horror fiction and so she she invited me to do something about lovecraft and of course you know lovecraft thinks that divination is it's not it's not that it's pointless it's not that it doesn't work but it doesn't matter that it works you know what i mean it's like
2: yeah
0: yeah
1: yeah tell you exactly how you're gonna die and you can't stop it you know what i mean so um but it's it's you know so i still don't consider myself like a big lovecraft fan but um I do think it's interesting that he just kept coming up over and over and over again in the writing of these stories, you know, to me, that says something about his approach, his his vibration, you know, um, like I said, the kind of the egregore that's been built around his stuff
0: yeah well I mean it's it's fascinating because there was also you know I mean so much of the connection with the early 14 society um
2: mm-hmm. yeah
0: uh the early contactee movement I'm thinking specifically with Borderlands and, uh, right. and Lane and I mean all those figures because uh, weird fiction is such a big component of all of this uh I mean Raymond Palmer was you know just such a big part as right. of shaping right. um you know UFOlogy and I mean, so much other stuff so it was all very interconnected back in the day because i think that you know the milieu that was interested in these topics i mean it wasn't as broad as it is uh in this day and age for a variety of reasons so there was a lot of overlap i mean what was it um gosh i think that palmer had like initially pilfered the list of the in society to try to pump up like the readership for fate magazine or something, something
1: like that. that yeah something like yeah yeah. Yeah, yes. yeah So i mean all the all these clever dudes
0: <laughs> yeah and i was about to throw amwork in there too i mean i was i was so tempted when you brought up the ring to say like did they get it from amwork from like one of those ads they used to
1: have? <laughs> no no no. actually I, I i'm pretty sure that it was probably i you know i don't even i i will i will wager that it wasn't even created for them I, it was probably like from their inventory
0: <laughs> yeah most yeah
1: prob- like. probably
0: well, Professor, this has been a fascinating conversation. Uh, did you have anything else to add here before we sign off?
1: Um, well, the only thing I would add is if if any of if, if anything of my work interests the listener, they can find all all of my stuff at professorwham.com.
0: Yes, it is a great source of information and I recommend you guys check that out and uh, give her books a, a gander as well. I fortunately have not had a chance to get around to them, but I am looking forward to cracking that Lovecraft book. You've got me even more intrigued now after this interview. And well, and
1: they're both and they're both on Audible. If if people would rather listen, and I will say this about the Audible, the, both the Audible books, um, I I hired a really good um, narrator for both of them, and he does an excellent job, um, and he is i mean they're both really good but he especially does a great job on the short stories he he makes he makes them completely come to life i mean i was listening to them you know and i was like i wrote this oh my god i wrote this you know um it's because he does such a great job
0: yeah so, you know i think it's definitely important especially with fiction that you've got to have somebody who can really get into character with some of this stuff oh yeah Um,
1: so if 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 audible is is where people want to go they can they can get the books there too
0: well definitely check it out folks uh with that we will sign off for now as always good night and good luck to you all
2: Me up Out here in my wiki up Sick and tired of fucking up Sick and tired of pushing luck Voodoo blue got juice in it Swallow what I'm about to spit Dunk got 86 From the Copper Queen for singing this I took it to the goat. J My people there they feeling me Down low skin Roll more characters than Stephen King Said I'm just working at the quarry y'all I ain't in a hurry y'all Baby, pick me up out here in my wiki up. Stuck down in this stick, hut is hot as hell. I tell you what, put it up and knock it down. Moving on that big corral. Come on, mama, jump down, turn around, do it for me, stick it out. Say one, two, three, mo. Jump, baby, we gotta go. Hands tied, blindfold, jump into that battle zone. I said it's time to get the fuck out, cause they not let the wolves out. They're coming with that heat Mama shooting up the street Mama fight or flight adrenaline You feel that little tingle in your feet Mama no retreat Mobilize your whole fleet Hit the street Tell me that you good for it You want peace Go to war for it Say one, two, three Geronimo Jump baby we gotta go Screaming with me Scream Geronimo that battle zone Come on baby Pick me up Out here in my wikia Got y'all on some Aztec Bullshit Never getting used to it Got bales of weed And catapult With santum We're diffusing it Shoot it over the castle While the micro Can't patrol it off From Berlin to the great While the greatest walls Are bound to fall So legalize it Vato about the Genghis Chapo Come on, legalize it No need to advertise it The weed cures the cancer Everybody even Carter, or realized If a farmer don't make cash money When we rock that stash, honey Best believe they sooner take it out your ass Sunday Come on, the man ain't getting wealthy With people getting healthy, right? Talking by high A-Z about that BMC, We got no economy if we ain't got no enemy. The Popo and the BP. DHS and Army. Honeywell and L3. Razor wires. UADs. Officer, excuse me, please. Said I'm just eating my burrito. Not the droids you're looking for. See you all on pay Day. See you at the Safeway Bisbee lives on crazy checks BP on that fast pay I sing my and blues, y'all I don't make the rules, y'all Just paying my dues, y'all But I'm just saying Sorry, hippies <laughs> If great white father don't make payroll Forget about your maple It's just the one thing that ain't too clear I said people always bitching about the government But that war administrations, our whole civilization, what?